Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We're reading the Junior Classics Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales, and we're continuing where we left off from this, or starting the story, uh, Bluebeard, by Charles Bruno. There once was a man who had five, who had fine houses, both in the country and in town, a deal of silver and gold plate, embroidered furniture, and coached, gilded all over with gold. But this man was so unlucky as to have a blue beard, which made him so ugly that all the women and girls ran away from him. One of his neighbors, a lady of quality, had two daughters who were perfect beauties. He asked her for one of them in marriage, but neither of them could bear the thought of marrying a man who had a blue beard. Besides, he had already been married several times, and nobody ever knew what became of his wives. In the hope of making them like him, Bluebeard took them with their mother and three or four ladies of their acquaintance and young people of the neighborhood to one of his many country houses, where he stayed a whole week. There were parties of pleasure, hunting, fishing, dancing, mirth, and fest feasting all the time. Nobody went to bed, but all passed the time in merrymaking and joking with one another. Everything succeeded so well that the youngest daughter began to think the master of the house was very was a very civil gentleman, and his beard was not very blue at all. As soon as they returned home, the marriage took place. About a month afterward, Bluebeard told his wife that he was obliged to take a journey for six weeks about affairs of a great consequence, desiring her to amuse herself in his absence, to send for her friends and acquaintances, to carry them into the country if she pleased, and to have a good time wherever she was. Here, said he, are the keys to the two great wardrobes, wherein I have my best furniture. These are of my silver and gold plates, which is not every day in use. These open my strong boxes, which hold my money, both gold and silver, these my caskets of jewels, and these the master key to my apartments. This little one here is the key to the closet at the end of the great gallery on the ground floor. Open them all, go into every one of them, except the little closet, which I forbid you. If you happen to open it, there is nothing but what you may expect from my just anger and resentment. She promised to observe exactly what he ordered, so having embraced her, he got into his coach and proceeded on his journey. Her neighbors and good friends did not wait to be sent for, so great was their impatience to all the rich fortune of her house. They ran through the rooms, closet, and wardrobes, which were all so fine and rich they seemed to surpass one another. After that they went up into the two great rooms where there where the best and richest furniture they could not they could not sufficiently admire 
the number and beauty of tapestries, beds, couches, cabinets, stands, tables, and looking glasses, in which you might see yourself head to foot. Some of them were framed with glasses, others with silver, plain and gilded. The finest and the most significant ever seen. They ceased not to compliment or envy their friend, but she was so much pleased by their curiosity to open the closet on the ground floor that without considering that it was very uncivil to leave her company, she went down a little back down a little back staircase with such haste that she had twice or thrice have to have broken her neck. After the closet door she hesitated, thinking of her husband's order and considering what unhappiness might attend her if she was disobedient. But the temptation was so strong she could not overcome it. She took the little key and opened it trembling, but could not at first see anything plainly, but the windows were shut. After some moments she began to perceive that the floor was covered with blood, in which lay the bodies of several dead women, ranged against the walls. These were the wives whom Bluebird had married and murdered, one after another. She thought she would die of fear, and the key which she pulled out of the lock fell out of her hand. After having somewhat recovered from the shock, she took up the key and locked the door, and went upstairs to her bedroom to rest. Having observed that the key of the closet was stained with blood, she tried two or three times to wipe it off, but the stain would not come out. In vain did she wash it and even rub it with soap and sand, and the blood still remained, for the key was magical. When the blood was removed from one side, it came to the other. Bluebird returned from his journey the same evening and said that he had received a letter upon the road informing him that the affair he went about was ended to his advantage. His wife did all she could to convince him. She was extremely glad of the speedy return. Next morning he asked her for the keys, which she gave him, but with a trembling hand that was easily guessed what had happened. What, said he, is not the key of my closet among the rest? I must certainly, she said, have left it above on the table. Fail not, said Bluebird, to bring it to me presently. After several going backwards and forwards, she was forced to bring him the key. Bluebird alternately considered it, and said to his wife, How come this blood upon the key? I don't know, cried the poor woman, paler than death. You don't know, replied Bluebeard. I very know. I very well know. You were resolved to go into the closet, were you not? Very well, madam, you shall go in and take your place among the ladies you saw there. Upon this she threw herself at her husband's feet and begged his pardon with all the signs of true repentance, vowing that she would never again be disobedient. She would have melted a rock, so beautiful and sorrowful was her she, but Bluebeard had a heart harder than any rock. You must die, madam, he said, that very soon. Since I must die, answered she, her eyes bathed in tears, give me some little time to say my prayers. I give you, replied Bluebeard, half a quarter of an hour, but not one more. And when she was alone, she called out to her sister, Sister Anne, go up, I beg you, on the top of the tower, and see if my brothers are not coming. They promised me that they would come today, and if you see them, give them a sign to make haste. Sister Anne went up on the top of the tower, and 
and the poor afflicted wife cried out from time to time, And, sister, do you see anyone coming? And sister Anne replied, I see nothing but the sun, which makes great a dust, and the grass which looks green. In the meanwhile, Bluebird, holding a great saber in his hand, cried out aloud as he could bawl to his wife, Come down instantly, or I shall come up after you. One moment longer, if you please, said his wife, and she began to cry out softly, Anne, sister, dost thou see anybody coming? And sister Anne answered, I see nothing but the sun, which makes a dust, and the grass which is green. Come down quickly, shouted Bluebird, or I will come up after you. I'm coming, answered his wife, and then she cried, Aunt sister, Anne, dost thou not see any one coming? I see, replied sister Anne, a great dust which comes on this side. Are they my brothers? Alas, no, my dear sister, I see a flock of sheep. Will you not come down, roared Bluebeard? One moment longer, and his wife, and then she cried out, Anne, sister Anne, does thou not see anybody coming? She said his wife, and she cried out, Anne, sister Anne, does thou not see anybody coming? I see, she said, two horsemen, but they are a great way off. God praised, replied the poor wife joyfully. They are my brothers. I will make them a sign, as well as I can, for them to make haste. Then Bluebeard brawled out so loud that he made the whole house tremble. The distressed wife came down and threw herself at his feet, all in tears, with her hair about her shoulders. That will not help you, says Bluebird. You must die. Then, taking a hold of her hair with one hand and lifting up the sword with the other, he was going to cut off her head. The poor lady, turning to him and looking at him with dying eyes, begged him to give her one little moment more. No, no, said he, say your prayers, and just about to strike. At this very instant there was such a loud knocking at the gate that Bluebeard looked up in alarm. The gate was opened by two horsemen, and two horsemen entered, who drew their swords and ran directly at Bluebeard. He knew them to be his wife's brother, one a dragon and the other a musketeer, so that he quickly ran to save himself. But the two brothers pursued so closely that they overtook him before he could get to the steps of the porch and ran their swords through his body and left him dead. The poor wife was almost as dead as her husband and had not the strength enough to rise and welcome her brothers. Bluebeard had no heirs, so his wife became the mistress of all his estate. She made use of one party of it to marry her sister, Anne, and to a young gentleman who had loved her a long while, another part to buy captain's commission for her brothers, and the rest to marry herself to a very worthy gentleman who made her forget the unhappy time she had passed with Bluebeard. The Brave Little Tailor Anonymous One summer day a little tailor sat on his table by the window in the best of spirits and sewed for dear life. As he was sitting thus, a peasant woman came down the street, calling out, Good jam to sell, good jam to sell. This sounded sweetly in the tailor's ear. He put his little head out of the window and shouted, Up here, my good woman, and you'll find a willing customer. The woman climbed up the tree flight of stairs with her heavy basket to the tailor's room. 
and he made her spread out all the pots in a row before him. He examined them all, lifted them, and smoked them, and said at last, This jam seems good. Weigh for me four ounces of it, my good woman, and even if it's a quarter of a pound, I won't stick at it. The woman who had hopped to find a good market gave him what he wanted, but went away grumbling wrathfully. Now heaven shall bless this jam for my use, cried the little tailor, and it shall sustain and strengthen me. He fetched some bread out of a cupboard and cut around, uh, cut a round off the loaf and spread the jam on it. That will taste good, said he, but I'll finish that waistcoat first before I take a bite. He placed the bread beside him and went on sewing, and out of the lightness of his heart kept on making his stitches bigger and bigger. In the meantime, the smell of the sweet jam rose to the ceiling, where swarms of flies were gathered and attracted to them to such an extent that they swarmed on it in masses. Ah, who invited you, said the tailor, and chased the unwelcome guests away. But the flies, who didn't understand English, refused to let themselves be warned off, and he returned again even in greater numbers. At last the tailor, losing all patience, reached out of his chimney corner for a duster, exclaiming, Wait, I'll give it to you. He beat them mercilessly with it, and he left off, and he counted the slain, and no fewer than seven lay dead before him, with outstretched legs. What a brave fellow I am, said he, and was filled with admiration of his own courage. The whole town must know about this, and in a great haste the little tailor cut out a girdle, hemmed it, embroidered it on big letters, seven at a blow. What did I say? the town. No, the whole world shall hear it, he said. His heart beat for joy as a lamb wags his tail. The tailor strapped the griddle around his waist and set out into the wide world. He considered his workroom too small a field for his bravery. Before he set forth, he looked around him a bit. He looked around him to see if there was anything in the house he could take with him on his journey. But he found nothing except an old cheese, which he took possession of. In front of the house he observed a bird that had been caught in some bushes, and this he put into his wallet beside the cheese. Then he went on his way merrily, and being light and quick, he never felt tired. He, his way led up a hill, on the top of which sat a powerful giant, who was calmly surveying the landscape. The little tailor went up to him and greeted him cheerfully, and said, Good day, friend. There you sit, at your ease, viewing the whole wide world. I am just on my way there. What do you have to say to accompany me? The giant looked cont contemplatiously at the tailor, and said, What a poor, wretched little creature you are. That's a good joke, answered the little tailor, unbuttoned his coat, and showed the giant the girdle. There now you can read what sort of fellow I am. The giant read, Seven at a blow, and thinking they were human beings that the tailor had slain, he had certain respect for the little man. But first he thought he'd test him. So taking up a stone in his hand, he squeezed it till some of the drops of water ran out. Now you do the same, said the giant. If you really wish to be thought strong, is that all, said the little tailor? as child's play to me. So he dived into his wallet and brought out the cheese, 
and pressed it until the whey ran out. My squeeze was better than yours, he said. The giant didn't know what to say, for he couldn't believe it of the little fellow. To prove him again, the giant lifted a stone and threw it so high that I could hardly follow it. Now, my little dwarf, let me see you, you do that. Well thrown, said the tailor, but after all, your stone fell to the ground. I will throw one that won't come down at all. He dived into his wallet again, and grasping the bird in his hand, he threw it up into the air. The bird, enchanted to be free, soared up into the sky and flew away, never to return. Well, what do you think of that little piece of business, friend? asked the tailor. You can certainly throw, said the giant, but now let's see if you can carry a proper weight. With these words, he led the tailor to a huge oak tree, which had been filed to the ground, and said, If you are strong enough to help me carry the tree out of the wood, most certainly, said the little tailor, you just take the trunk on your shoulder, and I'll bear the top of the branches, which is certainly the heaviest part. The giant laid the trunk on his shoulder, but the tailor sat at ease among the branches, and the giant, who couldn't see what was going on behind him, had to carry the whole tree and the little tailor into the bargain. There he sat in the best of spirits, lustily whistling a tune, as if carrying the tree were a mere sport. The giant, after dragging the heavy weight for some time, could get on no further, and shouted, Hi, I must let the tree fall. The tailor sprang nimbly down and seized the tree with both hands, as if he had carried it the whole way, and said to the giant, Fancy a big lazy fellow like you not being able to carry a tree. They continued to go on their way together, and as they passed a cherry tree, the giant grasped at the top of it, where the ripest fruit hung, gave the branches to the tailor's hand, and bade him eat. But the little tailor was far too weak to hold the tree down, and when the giant let go, the tree swung back into the air, bearing the little tailor with it. When he had fallen to the ground again, without hurting himself, the giant said, What, do you mean to tell me you haven't the strength to hold down a feeble twig? It wasn't strength that was wanting, replied the tailor. Do you think that would have been anything for a man who has killed seven a blow? I jumped over the tree, because the huntsmen are shooting among the branches near us. Do you do like... Do as you do, the like if you dare. The giant made an attempt, but could not get over the tree, and struck fast into the branches, so that here, too, the little tailor had bettered him. Well, you're a fine fellow after all, said the giant. Come and spend the night with us in our cave. The little tailor willingly considered to do this, and following his friend, they went on until they reached a cave where several other giants were sitting around a fire, each holding a roast sheep in his hand, which he was eating. The little tailor looked about him and thought, Yes, there is certainly more room to turn around in here than in my workshop. The giant showed him a bed and bade him lie down and have a good sleep, but the bed was too big for the little tailor, so he didn't get into it, but it crept away into a corner. At midnight, when the giant thought the little tailor was fast asleep, he rose up, taking his big iron walking stick. He broke the bed in two with a blow, and though he had made an end of the little grasshopper, 
he broke the bed in two with a blow, and though he had made an end of the little grasshopper, at early dawn the giant went off to the woods and quite forgot about the little tailor, till all of a sudden they met him trudging along in the most cheerful manner. The giants were terrified at seeing him, and fearing lest he should slay them, they all took to their heels as fast as they could. The little tailor continued to follow his nose, and after he wandered about for a long time, he came to a courtyard of a royal palace, and feeling tired, he lay down on the grass and slept. While he lay there, the people came and looked him all over and read on his girdle, seven at a blow. Oh, they said, what can this great hero of hundred fighters, of a hundred fighters, want in our peaceful land? He must indeed be a mighty man of valor. They went and told the king about him, and said, "What a we, what a weighty, and useful man he'd be in a time of war, and that it must be well to secure him at any price." The council pleased the king, and he sent for his courtiers down to the little tailor to offer him, when he awoke, a commission in their army. The messenger remained standing by the sleeper and waited till he stretched his limbs and opened his eyes. When he tendered his proposal, that was the very thing I came here for, he answered. I am quite ready to enter the king's service. So he was received with all honors and a special house of his own to live in. But the other officers were angry at his success of the little tailor and wished him a thousand miles away. What to come of it all? they asked one another. If we quarrel with him, he'll let us let out at us, and every blow seven will fall. There will soon be an end of us, so they are resolved to go in a body to the king, and all to send in their papers. We are not made, they said, to hold out against a man who kills seven at a blow. The king was grieved at the thought of losing all his faithful servants for the sake of one man, and he wished heartily that they had never set eyes on him, or that he could get rid of him, but he did not dare to send him away, for he feared that he might kill him and place himself on the throne. He thought long and deeply over the matter, and finally came to a conclusion. He set out for the tailor and told him that, seeing what a great and warlike hero he was, he was about to make him an offer. In a certain wood of his kingdom, there dwelt two giants who did much harm by the way they robbed and murdered and burnt and plundered everything about them. No one could approach them without endangering his life. If he could overcome and kill these two giants, he should have the king's only daughter for a wife and half of his kingdom into the bargain. He might have a hundred horsemen too to back him up. That's the very thing for a man like me, thought the little tailor. One does not get the offer of, of a beautiful princess and half a kingdom every day. Done with you, he answered. I'll soon put an end to the giants, but I haven't the smallest need of your hundred horsemen. A fellow who can slay seven men at a blow need not be afraid of two. The little tailor sent out, and the hundred horsemen followed him. When he came to the outskirts of the wood, he said to his followers, You wait here. I'll manage the giants myself. And he went into the wood, casting his sharp little eyes right 
and left about him. After a while he spied the two giants lying asleep under a tree, snoring till the very bar- the very brows bent with the breeze. The little tailor lost no time in filling his wallet with stones, and then climbed up the tree under which they lay. When he got to about the middle of it, he slipped along the branch till he sat just above the sleepers. When he threw down one stone after another on the nearest giant, the giant felt nothing for a long time. But at last he woke up, pinching his companion, and said, What did you strike me for? I didn't strike you, said the other. I must be dreaming. They both lay down to sleep again, and the tailor threw a stone on the second giant, who sprang up and cried, What's that for? Why did you throw something at me? I didn't throw anything, growled the first one. They wrangled on for a time, till as they were both tired, they made up the manor and fell asleep again. The little tailor began his game once more, and flung the largest stone he could find in his wallet with all his force and hit the first giant on the chest. This was too much of a good thing, he yelled, and springing up like a madman, he knocked his companion against the tree till he trembled. He gave, however, a good as he got, and they became enraged that they tore up the tree and beat each other with them till they both fell dead at once on the ground. Then the little tailor jumped down, it's a mercy, he said, that they didn't root up the tree on which I was sitting, or I should have been to jump like a squirrel onto another, which nimble as though I am would have been no easy job. He drew his sword and gave each of the giants a very fine thrust or two on the breast, and then went to the horsemen and said, The deed is done. I have put an end to the two of them, but I assure you it has been no easy matter for they even tore up trees in their struggle to defend themselves. But all that is of no use against one who slays seven men at a blow. Weren't you wounded? asked the horseman. No fear, answered the tailor. They haven't touched a hair on my head, but the horseman couldn't believe him till they rode into the woods and found the giants weltering in their blood and the trees lying around them, torn up by the roots. The little tailor now demanded the promised reward, but the king repented his promise and pondered once more how he could rid himself of the hero. Before you obtain the hand of my daughter and half my kingdom, he said to him, you must do another deed of valor. A unicorn is running about loose in the wood and doing much mischief. You must catch it. I am even less afraid of one unicorn than of two giants. Seven at a blow, that is my motto. He took a piece of cord and an axe with him and went out into the wood and again told the man that he had been sent with to remain outside. He hadn't to search for long, for the unicorn soon passed by and, perceiving the tailor, dashed straight at him and threw it with dashed straight through him as though it was going to spike him on the spot. Gently, gently, said he, not so fast, my friend. And standing still, he waited till the beast was quite near, and when he sprang lightly behind a tree, the unicorn ran with all its force against the tree and rammed its horn so firmly into the trunk that it had no strength left to pull it out again. 
and was thus successfully captured. Now I've caught my bird, said the tailor, and he came out from behind the tree and placed the cord around its neck first, then snuck the horn out of the tree with his axe, and everything was in order, led the beast before the king. Still the king didn't want to give him the promised reward, and made a third demand. The tailor was to catch a wild boar for him that did a great deal of harm in the wood, and he might have the huntsman to help him. Willingly, said the tailor, that's mere child's play, but he didn't take the huntsman into the woods with him, and then they were all well enough pleased to remain behind, for the wild boar had often received them in a manner which did not make them desire its further acquaintance. As soon as the boar perceived the tailor, it ran at him with a foaming mouth and gleaming teeth, and tried to knock him down, but out alert but our alert little friend ran into the chapel that stood near and got out of the window with a jump. The boar per pursued him into the church, but the tailor skipped round the door and closed it securely, so the raging beast was caught, for it was far too heavy and wieldy to spring out the window. The little tailor summoned that the huntsmen together, and they might see the prisoner with their own eyes. Then the hero took he took himself to the king, who was obliged now, whether he liked it or not, to keep his promise and hand him over his daughter and half his kingdom. Had he known that the no hero war hero was a little tailor stood before him, it would have gone even more to his heart. So the wedding was celebrated with much splendor and a little joy, and the tailor became a king. After a time, the queen heard her husband saying one night in his sleep, My lad, make that waistcoat and patch these trousers or I'll box your ears. Thus she learned in what rank the young gentleman had been born, and next day she poured forth her woes to her father and begged him to help her get rid of a husband who was nothing more nor less than a tailor. The king confronted her and said, Leave your bedroom door open tonight. My servants shall stand outside. And when your husband is fast asleep, they shall enter, bind him fast, and carry him onto a ship, which shall sail away out into the wide ocean. The queen was satisfied with the idea, but the armor-bearer who had overheard everything, being much attached to his young master, went straight to him and revealed the whole plot. I'll soon put a stop to this business, said the tailor. That night he and his wife went to bed at the usual time, and when she thought he had fallen asleep, she got up and opened the door, then lay down again. The little tailor, who had only pretended to be asleep, began to call in a, cure, in a clear voice, My lad, make that waistcoat and patch these trousers, or I'll box your ears. I have killed seven at a blow, slain two giants, led by a unicorn captive, and caught a wild boar. Then why should I be afraid of all those men standing outside my door? The men, when they heard the tailor saying these words, were so terrified that they fled as if pursued by a wild army, and didn't dare go near him again. So the little tailor was and remained king all the days of his life. The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood by Charles Burnett There was once a distant country and a king and queen whose only sorrow was that they had no children, 
At last the queen gave birth to a little daughter. The king showed his joy by giving a christening feast so grand that the like of it was never known. He asked all the fairies in the land there where seven found in the kingdom to stand, godmother to the little princess, hoping that each might bestow her some good gift. After the christening, all the guests returned to the palace, where they were placed before each fairy godmother, magnificent covered dish, a fork, knife, a knife, fork, and spoon of pure gold, set with precious stones. But they all were sitting down at a table, there entered an old fairy who had not been invited, because it was not more than fifty years since she had gone out of a certain tower, and she was thought to be dead or enchanted. The king ordered a cover to be placed for her, but it was of common earthware, for he had ordered from the jewelry only seven gold dishes for the seven fairies. As for said, the old fairy thought herself neglected and muttered angry threats, which were overheard by one of the youngest, younger fairies who chanced to sit beside her. This good godmother, afraid to harm the pretty baby, hastened to hide herself behind the hangings in the hall. She did this because she wished to speak last and repair any evil the old fairy might intend. The fairies now offered their good wishes, which, unlike most wishes, were sure to come true. The first wished that the little princess should grow up the fairest woman in the world. The second was that she would have wit like an angel. And the third that she should be perfectly graceful. The fourth that she should sing like a nightingale. The fifth that she should dance perfectly well. The sixth that she should play all kinds of music perfectly. Then the old fairy's turn came. Shaking her head spitefully, she uttered the wish that whenever the baby grew up, and to a young lady, and learned to spin, she might prick her finger with the spindle and die of the wound. This terrible prophecy made all the company tremble, and everyone fell into crying, upon which the wise young fairy appeared from behind the curtain and said, Assure yourselves, O queen and queen, the princess shall not die. I have no power to undo what my elders has done. The princess must pierce her finger with the needle, and she shall then sink, not into the sleep of death, but into a sleep that will last a hundred years, and after that time is ended, the son of the king shall come and awake her. Then all the fairies vanished. The king, in the hope of avoiding his daughter's doom, issued an edict forbidding all persons to spin, and even to have spinning wheels in their houses, on pain of instant death, but it was in vain. One day, when she was fifteen years of age, the king and queen left their daughter alone in one of their castles, where, wandering about at her will, she came into a little room on top of a tower, and there found a very old woman, who had not heard of the king's edict, busy with her spinning wheel. "'What are you doing, old woman?' said the princess. "'I'm spinning, my pretty child. Ah, oh, how pretty! Let me see if I can spin also.' She had no sooner taken up the needle and being hasty and unhandly, she pierced her finger with the point. Though it was such a small wound, she fainted away at once and dropped to the floor. The poor old woman called for help. Shortly came the ladies-in-waiting, who tried every means to restore their young mistress, but all in vain. She lay beautiful as an angel, 
the color still lingering in her lips and cheeks, her fair bosom softly stirred with her breath, only her eyes were fast closed. When the king, her father, and the queen, her mother, beheld her thus, they knew that all that had happened, and the cruel fairy, fairy meant, and that their daughter would sleep for a hundred years. They sent away all the physicians and attendants, and themselves sorrowing laid her upon a bed of the finest apartment in the palace. There she slept and looked like a sleeping angel still. When the misfortune happened, the kindly young fairy, who had saved the princess by changing her sleep of death to this sleep of a hundred years, was twelve thousand leagues away in the kingdom of a mannequin. But being informed of everything by a little dwarf who wore several league boots, she arrived speedily in a chariot of fire drawn by dragons. The king handed out her chariot, and she approved of them all. The king handed her out of her chariot, and she approved of all he had done. Then, being a fairy of great common sense and foresight, she thought that the princess, awakened after a hundred years in this old castle, might not know what to do with herself if she found herself alone. Accordingly, she touched with her magic wand everybody and everything in the palace except the king and queen, governess, ladies of honor, and wanting maids, gentlemen and cooks, kitchen girls, pages, footmen, and even horses that were in the stable, and the grooms all attended them. She touched each of them and neighed the dogs too, in that outer court, and the little fat lapdog, Mosby, who had laid himself down, beside his mistress on her splendid bed, were all touched, and they, like all the rest, fell fast asleep in a moment. The very spites that were before the kitchen fire fell asleep, and the fire itself and everything became as still as if it was the middle of night, or as if the palace were a place of the dead. The king and queen, having kissed their daughter, went out of the castle, giving orders that it was to be approached no more, the command was unnecessary, for in one quarter of an hour there sprang up around it a wood so thick and thorny that neither beast nor man could attempt to penetrate there. Above the dense mass of forest could only be seen on top of the high tower where the lovely princess slept. When a hundred years were gone, the king had died, and his throne had passed to another royal family, the reigning king's son being one day out hunting was stopped in the chase by a great wood, inquired what wood it was, and what what were those terrors which he saw appearing out of the midst. Everyone answered and everyone answered as he had heard. Some said it was an old castle haunted by spirits, others said it was a abode of riches and enchanters. The most common story was that an org an ogre lived there, and a giant with long teeth and claws, who carried away a naughty little boys and girls and ate them up. The prince did not know what to think. At length an old peasant was found who remembered having heard his grandfather say to his father that in the tower was a princess, beautiful as the day, who was doomed to sleep there for a hundred years until awoken by a king's son who was to marry her. At this the young prince who had the spirit of a hero determined to find out the truth for himself. Spurred on by love and honor, he 
he leaped out from the horse and began to force his way through the thick wood. To his amazement, the stiff branches all gave way, and the ugly throne drew back of their own accord, and the brambles buried themselves in the earth to let them pass. This done, he closed behind him, allowing none to follow. Nevertheless, he pushed boldly on alone. The first thing he saw was enough to freeze him with fear. Bodies of men and horses lay extended on the ground, but the men had faces, not death white, but red as rose, and besides them were glasses were filled with wine showing that they had gone to sleep drinking. Next he entered a large court paved with marble, where stood rows of guards and presenting arms, but as still as if cut out of stone, and there passed through many chambers where gentlemen and ladies, all in dress of the past century, slept at their ease, and still some standing, some sitting. The pages were lurking in corners, and ladies of honor were stooped over their embroidered frames, or listening to the gentlemen of the court, but all were silent as if all were silent and as quiet as statues. Their clothing, strange to say, were fresh and new as ever. Not a particle of dust or spiderweb had gathered over the furniture, though it had not been known to brood for a hundred years. Finally astonished, the prince came to the inner chamber, where the very fairest sight of his eyes ever beheld. A young girl, whose wonderful beauty, lay asleep on the embroidered bed, and she looked as if she had only closed her eyes. Trembling, the prince approached her, knelt beside her. Some say he kissed her, but as nobody saw it, and she was never told, we cannot be quite sure of the fact. However, as the end of the enchantment had come, the princess walked at as once, and looked at him the princess walked out at once, and looking at him with eyes of tenderness regard, said sleepily, Is that you, my prince? I have waited for you for very long. Charmed with these words, and still more by the tone in which they were uttered, the prince assured her that he loved her more than his life. For a long time they did sit talking, and yet had not said half enough. Their only interruption was the little dog Mopey, who had been awakened with his mistress, and now began to be jealous of the prince. Be jealous that the princess did not notice him, as much as she wanted him to do. Meanwhile, the attendant, whose enchantment was also broken, not being in love, were ready to die of hunger after their last hundred years. A lady of honor ventured to say that dinner was served, whereupon the prince handed his beloved princess at once to the greatest hall. She did not wait to dress her she did not wait to dress herself for dinner, being already perfectly magnificent attired, though in a fashion somewhat out of date. However, her love had the politeness not to notice this, nor to remind her that she was dressed exactly like his grandmother, whose portrait still hung on the palace walls. During the dinner and concert by the attendants, musicians took place, and considering they had not touched their instrument for a century, they played on old tunes extremely well. They ended with a wedding march, for that very evening the prince and princess were married. After a few days they went together out of the castle, 
and enchanted wood, and both were immediately, and both of which immediately vanished, and were never more beheld by mortal eyes. The princess was restored to her ancestral kingdom, and after a few years, the prince and she became king and queen, and ruled long and happily. And that's it for this episode of the Flirtations Life to Take podcast. Next Friday, we will continue where we left off. We're getting close close to the end of the Junior Classics Volume 1. I think maybe maybe two more, two more episodes before we move on to our next book. I want to thank everyone for coming out. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.